This episode is part two of a conversation we had with our agents. If you haven't already, check out the previous episode for part one. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Photodub. This is a podcast by and for working photographers with Ren and Jen. When you guys are filling your roster, do you look for artists that have similar styles or do you want rosters to hit like very different categories so that you can be more well-rounded? Is there like a specific approach that you take to like stylistically what photographers you choose to work with? Yeah, I think we have at Apostrophe a really big mix across all the different genres. You want to have people that aren't too similar, but that are similar enough that they can draft off of each other. You know, when a project comes in that one isn't available for, you can put the other one up for. So I think it's finding some similarities, but in a way that they aren't, you know, constantly competing against each other. Yeah, I think my operation is so small that I I look for individualism kind of first and foremost, because I want I want that percentage of job award to be much higher than 30%. And so I look for people who I feel like are ownable in their style. And I think almost 90% of the opportunities that come into my inbox, they know exactly who they want to bid on the roster. And it feels more, you know, I think my agency in general attracts more direct to brand type opportunities. And those are like Lauren was saying a little bit, a higher percentage to book because you're not, you're not bidding with multiple Sometimes you're bidding with another, but maybe not three or four or five. (laughs) That brings up an interesting uh, just question. We have a ton of clients that come to us saying we're looking for recommendations. Send us your, you know, your photographers that you think are a good fit. Do you see that a lot, Robin? Or people are often just coming only for one artist? It's more often they're coming for a specific artist in mind. But like I said, I do get the opportunities, I feel like, from trusted production companies who are then art buying, that kind of thing, or art buyers who are more like freelance and working for a specific brand. And I've maintained a relationship with them, but it's much more the former. And like I was saying, when someone comes to me for sort of a pitch um, to pitch a photographer to that's when I oftentimes introduce my off roster photographers to jobs so I can really find kind of the best person for their job because there are so few of us on the roster should we talk about money everyone wants to talk about money (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think a lot of people are wondering especially when you first sign artists do you take a cut of all of their work just the work that you bring in that they bring in like how does that work I think apostrophe is very friendly in this uh, in this way that we're, you know, we don't take editorial from our artists. We allow them to do that outside of the agency. And in general, we're taking a cut of, of all of their projects, but it's, it is a bit of a case-by-case basis. If a project comes in that the rate is $2,500 and it's, something that I think you can manage on your own, then I might say, go ahead and take this outside of the agency. It's never my intention to try to bankrupt our artists. You know, I'm trying to get you onto those bigger and better projects. So if that means that you have to take some projects outside of the agency in order to survive that first year or two, then that to me is is okay. Yeah, I think my main thing is a lot of my artists are in food and beverage and they do cookbooks. 
And those can be really tight budgets to manage um, where the photographer is kind of getting the whole lump sum for the production and ending up with very little for their fee for how many days worked. Um, and so that's, that's one thing that I'm definitely flexible on. I find that some of you guys still want me to work on those projects here and there. It depends. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> it depends on the cookbook, but those can be really challenging agreements to work through and payment terms to sort out and just sort of politics and timelines and, and all of that. So I, I give my artists the opportunity to, to take those cookbooks on their own. Yeah. I mean, I personally, to be totally transparent, like Robin and I, share all of our work together and I actually really prefer that Robin I don't know if I ever told you but I really like it because it aside from the cookbooks which sometimes I beg I'm like please take this cookbook and you're like no thanks (laughs) (laughs) but otherwise it's just to me it frees my mind from wondering should I bring this to Robin should I not what do I charge for this is it too high is it too low I feel like by just just kind of linking everything together it's either handled or we pass on it Mm -hmm. and to me that's what I really didn't even know I wanted until I wanted it so I do think it's important to note that every agent does it differently and I think every photographer wants different things from that kind of relationship yeah and I think also depending on how busy you are too like sometimes you just don't want to deal with I mean it's a lot of work (laughs) All, all, the, all the other stuff that you don't handle. Um, yeah. But it's a, usually a lot of the editorial stuff is a lot of work and very little or no money. So uh, that's where it gets. And just inquiries in general, like the fact that you guys kind of suss out what kind of budget, like you can, there's usually phrasing in an email that lets you know what kind of scope or scale this <laughs> this client might have. Yes. And I really appreciate that you guys kind of take on the the entrance to the conversation and kind of filter out conversations that are worth having and not having. And it does free up creative space for us, which is great. Yeah. I like working on all the business, including editorial, just because I feel like that just reinforces us as a creative team. Um, we can look at the calendar a little bit more holistically. Um, I think editorial too, especially for the categories that my photographers shoot, namely like food, beverage, still life for editorial, those opportunities are much fewer and far between now. We're not shooting, you know, when I first started in the business as an agent, like eight years ago, my photographers were doing like six, seven days a month of editorial. And now that's maybe one, two days a month editorial. It's really cut down. And so I think um, what used to be sort of a profitable funnel of income and consistent because editorial clients are so loyal, they'll book you, you know, several times a year, at least if you're one of their go-tos is now, you know, I look at editorial differently. Like, do we really like the opportunity? Are we going to be able to work with stylists that we want to try that are new or our best friends that are stylists? Like, is it an opportunity um, that's good for your portfolio? Is it a subject that you've always wanted to shoot? Um, Is it something that you're building in your portfolio? Like editorial no longer feels like an avenue of income basically <laughs> it's not some it's yeah, not it's all about 
it's creative building for your portfolio. I mean, right. We absolutely. We promote to editorial. We encourage our artists to shoot it, but just don't have the bandwidth to be managing a, you know, a project that pays sometimes $300. You know, it's crazy yeah. the rates, but the, I'd say the biggest avenue we shoot editorial in is celebrity portraiture and that work really does bring in commercial work. I think commercial clients see that you've shot, you know, this massive celebrity and they put just a little bit more trust in you that you're, you know, a big enough, cool enough artist that they want to work with. How do you manage calendars with editorial holds that your artists might have when a big ad job comes in? Do you honor those holds or do you try to push it you know I actually have never really had that problem happen I mean we you know we share a calendar for everything where all the dates are on there and thankfully editorial typically happens so last minute that it's not an issue I mean a lot of times it's a week ahead of time you know we have this celebrity next week can you make it work and they're able to kind of shift within the days that are available so thankfully uh, so far it hasn't been an issue but I am very transparent with our clients and you know try to always honor the the holds yeah Robin I feel like we've gotten into some sticky situations Yeah, I, I don't think with editorial, though, because I think to Lauren's point, like photo editors have learned to produce these things really quickly or else they will get cancellations. You know, you can't right. you can't you can't book an editorial shoot even a month out because something else will come up. So um, I feel like, yeah, I don't it's very rare that we have to cancel on an editorial because those are kind of, oh, can we fit it in to, to next week? Yes or no type opportunities. Um, I think what's really challenging is those dang cookbooks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those last so many days. They're so long. Yeah, so those kind of opportunities where they're they're booked several months out, um, they usually take maybe two consecutive weeks of your time. You're obviously on the hook for the full team. So you adjusting dates is not just a snap of your fingers. It's like a lot of people involved that you've been holding. Um, and similarly, I feel the same way about catalog work. It books really far out and often takes between like one and three weeks at a time. I used to represent a lot of interior photographers and it's great because they have this loyal income that kind of keeps coming back and books each season for, for one or two weeks. But that means we have things on the calendar six, seven months ahead of time and you never know what's going to come up. And I think in general, I've had to say no to exciting opportunities because we have to honor a two-week catalog hold, which is not the worst problem to have, but it's, it is challenging when you get those longer holds that are placed further out in the calendar. I really appreciate like hardcore stylist agents that just only give you a second hold no matter what. You're like, <laughs> I respect, yeah. respect. If you get double inquiries or triple inquiries, sometimes four or five inquiries in a week, how transparent are you with holes that your artist might have? Because I feel like sometimes if a big ad client comes in and you can only give them a second hole, they might not be interested in bidding you necessarily. I find that usually if a client wants the artist bad enough that a second hole doesn't scare them away. I mean, we typically, even if you are a third, fourth, fifth hold, we give a second hold because if you you tell them you're a fourth hold, then they're definitely going to go away. So beyond the 
the first and second hold, then you do have some flexibility to decide on the back end, like which client is the priority, but the likelihood that they're all going to confirm is, is pretty low, right? So usually it ends up kind of working itself out. They either move dates or they, you know, release and then it works itself out. Yeah. I definitely agree with the, with the first and second hold only because obviously if you have a second hold, you can, you can challenge and then we can kind of do what we want with that information. <laughs> what, whether or not we, whether or not we do challenge our client, you know, yeah, we hold the power of, of organizing the dates a little bit. And you have to remember that percentage of like of booking opportunities at 30%. So you have to play the field a little bit. And I have to remind myself of this sometimes because I am very, I like to honor holds. And Ren, Ren you shared, I think, our, our main uh, issue with this on a previous podcast, right? Where it was a repeat client. You shared that story. Yes. Yeah, sometimes we... If it's a repeat client that we've done several of the same job for, you feel like, oh, this is 100% going to confirm. And so, and so you say no to other inquiries. Mm, yes. <laughs> and then yeah. they don't confirm. That's why the regular ones are not always, they got to they gotta work her a little harder sometimes. <laughs> yeah, that's the worst when the regulars just fall out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So don't, don't say no until you have a signed PO, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And don't assume and don't assume you have a job until you have the job. I used to be like, I got this inquiry. I'm shooting this week. And it's like, oh, never mind. I'm very free. I feel like my biggest thing that I say to Robin now is I'll believe it when I see it. Yeah, I think something people are always curious about is what kind of percentages artists take and if there are any other requirements that you guys have seen just either at your current agents or in your past um, jobs, if there's any requirements for the artist to like be on a, you know, workbook or I don't know, one of those like yellow pages or sign and pay monthly to help contribute to your business success. I mean, I, I don't think they would say they are the agent wouldn't say their business expenses, but as an artist <laughs> looking at it, it's usually that's what it feels like. Um, but yeah, are you guys t- comfortable talking about that? Uh, so we're talking about contracts, agreements between artist and agent and what sort of terms that might include. Um, I've definitely seen contracts that include you know, a yearly stipend for promotion that could be printed materials that the agency prints with the full roster included, um, stipends for sort of portfolio events like Le Book, uh, photo cares, other things like that, or photo works, I don't know. Um, and then there's sort of database subscriptions sometimes that people want to be a part of workbook, etc. Those are all things that, you know, I've seen at past agencies that I've worked at. I don't currently require. I think we're kind of at a interesting place in this industry where we need to evolve the way that we're promoting. So I'm not necessarily requiring, you know, three printed portfolio books and, you know, that we go to the book every year and that we you know, print out all these agency promotions and do snail mail. I think I'm sort of as my own business entrepreneur trying to figure out what our new ways of promotion are. And that's typically more of a digital approach. I take on a lot of my cost of doing business. Um, We all have overhead. So 
that's kind of something that I feel is, is on me as a business owner, but I know everyone does it a little bit differently. Yeah. We try to rope a lot of those business costs just into the percentage of commission that we take, but it's not abnormal for an agency to bill for, like Robin said, things like the book or printing of books. I mean, I think there is still opportunity to do some marketing that does cost money other than just Zoom. So all of that goes into what it costs just to operate a business. Yeah. So I think as an artist looking at a contract, you just need to think about those things and whether you feel that they're a good marketing strategy and you and you want to pay into that. Um, all of those things are are valuable tools, you know, to be a part of. There's there's no bad promotion and it's really hard to track what works over your career you know what sticks and and we always try to ask you know how a client finds us because it's so interesting um right now I feel like a lot of my artists are being found on Pinterest for better or for worse and I've had clients you know it's always interesting to ask your client too that they provide you with the usage but it's interesting to ask them you know obviously what their media buy is for the imagery. You want to know where it's going to be. And Ren and I have had clients say that they're spending a large portion of their budget on Pinterest advertising. So you never know, it's constantly changing. Um, And so I don't think there's a right or wrong answer about, you know, how an agency should promote an artist. Um, So I think when you're looking at a contract, just be aware of, of what they're charging you for and what they're prioritizing and just see whether that feels like something you're aligned with, because I think we all have different opinions on that and there's maybe no right answer and it could be different for um, specific shooting categories I think like source books um, source books and and online sort of search functions for artists I think are really really valuable if you live outside of a major metro region like say you're Colorado based Austin based something like that where it's a city you can have a commercial photography career there but you're not you know on page two of Google results, like Jennifer. (laughs) (laughs) Jennifer's on page one. (laughs) Page one of LA food photographer. You know, it's really helpful as a producer or a client if they need to shoot in any of those smaller regions to be able to kind of look up talent online in a certain way. So that's what I say about about those source books in general to be like more specific. I think that could be a really valuable tool if you're not, you know, in a major metro area. Do you agree, Lauren? I'm always interested to know. Yeah, a lot of our artists ask if we think it's worth doing, and the answer is usually no. To be to be honest, yeah. I mean, we do the book. We do all the books. We actually just had um, uh, Kelly and our our promotional manager in London for the first time doing London the book. But in terms of the source books, I think that might be more valuable if you're not on an agency because you don't have a team working behind you. I mean, they're pretty expensive. So I think trying to save your dollars where you can is important. So we don't usually suggest it. Yeah, I feel like one of those books... I feel like they didn't have as many artists, but I, I want to say it was like $8,000 a year and I wasn't signed at the time. And like, that's so much money you have to like, just for the book. I would rather see you take that $8,000 and make the most amazing tests that yeah. I can mm-hmm. go right. out and promote yeah. the work instead of that. Absolutely. I agree. I feel like artists in a way, even if you're not asking them to contribute to a marketing budget should have some sort of personal marketing testing budget that they're setting aside 
to work on their own business. Which can grow over the years to be larger. It's harder in the beginning for sure. Yeah. I, I want all my artists to kind of invest in their their own websites and social media. You know, that's like something that I don't necessarily have a hand in necessarily. And I want it to have their own voice and be different from how I curate their work because then maybe we're attracting, you know, an even bigger footstep of people. Um, but that's not a specific budget that I discuss with each photographer. I think that's just something that we develop in conversations as like, okay, I trust that you're doing this work in the background and investing in it. Have you noticed, not only since the pandemic, but maybe over the past five years, have you noticed a shift in pricing and also with like any shifts in the industry that you've kind of clocked that you're kind of tackling in a different way? I'd say the biggest shift has been the addition of motion and all of our artists needing to also be directors and to try to often fit those motion asks into the same number of days and the same budgets. That has been the most challenging thing because a lot of clients don't understand that motion takes longer. It costs a lot more. Your crew structure is different. Your lighting's more expensive. That I would say has been one of the biggest changes in terms of day rates, you know, during the pandemic, maybe for a little while, some of the rates went down, but I'd say a lot of clients tried to shoot with influencers and, you know, move outside the, the commercial photography scene and it didn't work so well for them and they came back and we were still demanding the same rates. So I think we've actually been able to stay pretty firm on that, but the motion thing is, is huge. That's a huge change. Yeah, definitely. I agree with the motion asks for sure. I think if you if you don't have some sort of approach for that at this point, it's really hard to to book these larger opportunities or even sort of mid-range opportunities. I think the biggest uh, shift in the industry is is needing more for less. <laughs> and I, I don't think that holistically like these clients' budgets have gotten smaller. I just think they are stretched over so many different platforms and... I try to be empathetic and kind of realize that um, that that also means that there are more opportunities than ever to make make images, and we just have to figure out what our approach is and definitely when to push back. Some of these budgets that we get these days are just not feasible, and that could just not even be an overall budget indicator. It could be a it could be a deliverables um, number that we're just not comfortable with, you know. A lifestyle shoot where they want to walk with 150 retouched images is just in one day. You just have to find those things that people are asking for nowadays that aren't feasible. And I remember you explained it to me one time that agencies used to shoot like two to four big jobs in a year. And now they might have to shoot 12 because they're targets are Instagram, social, whatever, where they have to have content monthly. So I feel like that's a big challenge because like you said, the budgets that they have for the year might be the same, but now they're stretched across 12 shoots instead of four. Well, and a big part of that is usage. I mean, I think we're, we're yet to see what's to come with the usage conversation. You know, there's a lot of clients trying to move to 
in perpetuity, full buyouts, you know, the, especially as motion becomes more of a norm in our industry and they gave up their usage rights years ago, you know, it's hard to explain to those clients why we're still charging usage for photography. Why are you still charging usage for photography? It's your guys' livelihood, yeah. you know, that's how you guys make a living and it's, you know, your ownership over your imagery. I think it's, it's really important, but... Clients don't always see that. So it's a battle that we're continually having and and trying to educate. And that's a big part of what the AMA is also here for and having that usage glossary to understand what what the usage is that you actually need and what we can maybe leave off to give you better rates. You know, usage is a big part of your income stream. So trying to to keep that intact is super important. What is um, a piece of advice that you guys would give to artists who aren't currently represented just like, you know, in general for their careers, whether it's usage or work or whatever, is there something that you would say to artists who are not being represented that want to be represented? I would say seek help. Like no question is a dumb question. Um, Lauren, I, Lauren and I both just admitted to seeking resources online and talking to each other is a good way too. And networking, um, I think, we can all agree that, especially through this podcast, you guys have learned that no question is a dumb question and, and nothing is assumed. Um, there's enough gray area, like I mentioned earlier in this industry, that seeking counsel only helps us all. Because if you're kind of operating as a solo entity and maybe not abiding by what we're hoping can be an industry standard, then you're kind of hurting all of us. If you're really severely undercharging, then there's a client out there that's getting away with that. And that kind of hurts future opportunities. Um, and that's what drives rates down historically is I think clients getting away with that. So I would say know your worth and seek counsel. Yeah. I think that when, you know, when we meet these photographers through the apostrophe mentorship program, estimating is, is such a huge learning curve for them. A lot of artists are charging these, you know, flat rates that include everything and they're shocked to learn that they can charge for a camera, that they can charge for, you know, their time for retouching and for pre-pro and all of these different things. And that might be something that you can learn from other photographers or from a rep or from a producer. But like Robin said, just having open communication so that we're all estimating in the same way allows us to have a more even playing field. But I do think a lot of these artists are giving away their usage because they don't know better. They just, they don't realize that that's something that they can actually charge for. And do you talk to fellow agents, maybe outside of your agencies about their approaches, what they're charging, anything like that? Or do you try to keep it all internal? Hmm, good question. I think historically there's been like a lot of gatekeeping and well not gatekeeping I don't know if that's the right word but just like lack of information sharing but I have noticed like this community of agents in LA feels really really open and I think the pandemic helped with that like we can't keep all this information to ourselves um, so I think that that's a positive trend that I'm seeing in the industry is that agents are more communicative and transparent with each other. Cause I think that only, that only helps us. 
Yeah, I don't think it's a secret by any means, but it's with apostrophe being as large as it is, we have a kind of community within our own community to talk about rates. Um, probably more so from a production standpoint is when there's that open conversation because we're all sharing the same freelance producers within LA. And, you know, oftentimes they're getting asked to bid on a project with more than one of us at the same time. So in that way, we're always very open about, you know, our overall bottom line on a on a bid. How do you feel about bidding with a producer or production company that is bidding with another team as well for the same job? It's definitely not ideal. It doesn't happen that often, but it does happen sometimes. I mean, I think as long as they're estimating pretty similarly across the two and it, it becomes more of a creative decision than a uh, money decision, then it's it's okay. Yeah, I think uh, production companies are really good about letting you know. So then I think at least that decision is back on the artist and the agent. So I would always take that information to you and we would kind of discuss it, whether that makes sense for this opportunity or whether we want to, you know, reach out to a couple of other people. Because it's true that we all, there are, there are a few real, really good producers here and they're all super, super busy. It's same with stylists. I mean, stylists are bidding the same job oftentimes for multiple photographers, but I feel like that's a little bit more kosher, right? They don't mind. Yeah. Their rates are always usually pretty standard. So mm-hmm. have you noticed uh, rate increases over the past year or two in crew and styling yes very much so what about your photographers yeah photographers (laughs) right (laughs) what about us (laughs) I I see it a lot more in crew than unfortunately in photographers I mean I think during the pandemic it actually was so busy once the you know the gates were open to shoot again that crews were in such high demand and their, um, you know, risk assessment of is this job worth it for the amount of money, their their rates have gone up quite a bit, sometimes, you know, 20% or more. The photographers were already making a significant amount more than the crew. So, you know, there is that, but it's increased a lot. I mean, as it should, I feel like inflation is getting kind of insane. Yeah, it was due, you know, I think. I think there are still editorial and certain brands that need to and cost consultants that need to follow suit and update their point of view on crew rates. I'll keep it pleasant. (laughs) Yes, yes. But, you know, it's easy to say, like, I'm sorry, we're actually just not going to get anyone for that rate. Like this is yeah. it is what it is. You know, it. we heard from a cost consultant on one of our it was an AMA, uh, you know, session that we had that there is room to push back. They're going to try, but you should always push back if you think it's it's necessary. Yeah. Should we explain what a cost consultant is? Yeah. Yeah. So large advertising agencies, the type of, you know, agencies that we're doing these triple bids with larger advertising budgets and clients, the client often uh, works with a cost consultant who is kind of a third party, not involved in the job scope necessarily or production at all. Just a different set of eyes that is looking at our estimate that we've submitted and more or less giving us 
their unfiltered feedback on what they believe to be sort of industry standard rates. And I guess the point of this is to stop unnecessary, you know, markups, inflations, anything that they find kind of abnormal. I think oftentimes they're part of the system of a triple bid is that there's three different estimates to compare. So I oftentimes think that if there's kind of a low ball bid in the mix, the cost consultant can kind of use their numbers to push back on ours. But curious to hear Lauren's point of view on on this role as well. Just on that last point, I've actually had a cost consultant before tell me that I'm the lowest bid and to up my rates. So sometimes oh, they actually, you know, are a useful tool and making sure that all of the bids are somewhat similar. I love that. But like I said, I, I think that they'll ask for things sometimes that are completely unrealistic and it's our job to say that's not possible. And if the team wants your artist bad enough, they are usually willing to make those concessions as long as you're not way out of the you know realm of, of everyone else. Robin, I feel like you and I had a cost consultant recently that was you were trying to meet them in any way that you could, and they still just wouldn't budge on certain things. And we had to just be like, we we can't do it. <laughs> like, it's just not possible. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes it's just a you got to call it. You decide whether it's worth it or not for you to have the opportunity creatively to you know, eat the money if you have to find it somewhere, take it out of your rate, whatever you got to do to make it happen. Yeah, sometimes there's one or two things that are pretty non-consequential, you know, and so maybe you give them those two things and then push back on crew rates and usage, (laughs) that kind of thing. I think the number one thing I get pushback on is like definitely stylist rates, crew rates, the people getting paid the least amount in the budget are the ones that they want to take down even more. So I would encourage encourage everyone to, if you got to cost consult, then you have a little bit of power in this bid. So push back and get your crew what they deserve. And, and also keep the crew rates at the level of where you need them to do a really good job. Yeah. That's number one. Yeah. I mean, and like, for example, I, I recently had a shoot where the budget didn't allow for a prep day for the assistant. Like, we just couldn't afford it in the budget. And I really felt like, you know, the assistant didn't give their all because they weren't getting paid for it. And I and I understood completely, but it's just like... Yeah, was that 450 worth exactly. it? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, or even like having a second second side of the hands on a, you know, if it's like an extra $450 where we can move much faster. Yeah. It's frustrating when they don't hear it. <laughs> yeah. They think that they're thankful after the fact when, when you brought in something extra. I mean, I think there was just a job recently and it was like, we, we cut the digi. But I was like, I don't know if I can just use my laptop, like all of us on the laptop. So we got a, a monitor and, you know, at the end on site, they were like, thank God you have a monitor. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> thank God I have a monitor. <laughs> well, this was amazing. Thanks so much for 
chatting through everything and dealing with uh with our still trying to learn how to have guests on <laughs> thank you guys for having us yeah any uh any last words let's go book some shoots yeah yes <laughs> cheers to 2023 being a, a good year if you have any comments questions or ideas on future episodes email us at photodump.club at gmail.com Photodump was created by Ren Fuller and Jennifer Chong. Thank you to Sam Fuller for our cover art and overall tech support. Our music was created by Daniel Smith. You can find me on Instagram at jchongstudio. And me at Ren underscore Fuller. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.